podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of our Red Inca and YouTube network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience via Spotify Live. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. So let's crack on with some of the Patreon questions. Actually, just before we do, just a big shout out to Bodyline T-shirts. For those who care, I've changed my setup a little bit, and now you can see my T-shirt on the YouTube. So this is one of my favorite ones. Although I probably should have worn the WG Grace one. Uh, anyway, Will says, why can't Rob Key just be chairman of selectors? I don't see the argument for a CEO, MD, selector, head coach. Uh, feels like one role too many. Well, firstly, the chairman of selectors is the stupidest position in cricket, Will, because it's a position with no real power. You know, you can't change anything. So the chairman of selectors is a position that I would get rid of completely from all cricket. Uh, I would have general managers or managing directors, you know, working with a coach, working with the players, working with scouts, all these sorts of things to come up with the, the ideal kinds of players that the teams are looking for and then doing it that way. The reason that there's so many of those roles that you talk about is it's complicated running a, a major cricket team. You know, from underage cricket, women's cricket, all the way up to the men's game, uh, to the men's test team. Everything that sort of runs in the middle is huge. And how you develop your talent is far more important than just going, that guy's good, I'm going to pick him in my side. So that's why that sort of role uh, and Rob Key's position is so important. That said, um, good luck to Rob Key, because I don't know if he realizes what he's bitten off. I mean, I was a general manager for a few months of our franchise. It was probably about as busy as I've ever been outside of maybe making the film and a couple of other you know, small periods in my life. And it was out of season. <laughs> And it wasn't particularly, you know, uh, uh, solution wasn't particularly a high uh, pressure situation. So I can only imagine what it would be like to do the England team. Uh, Satchmo says, can you identify a specific moment in the second half of the 70s when the West Indies overtook Australia as the best test site? Was it before or after World Series cricket? Oh, okay. Well, West Indies really become a very good team in 1976. So it's after they lose to Australia. And, you know, Clive Lloyd's talked about, you know, being battered by Tomo and Lily. And that was part of the uh, inspiration for, you know, him going with the four quicks. Although, while I agree with that, also probably had something to do with the fact that India smashed their spinners everywhere. And it was, and it was also, it was quite a slow move. It wasn't like they did it instantly. Uh, and they already had a very good team. So I don't know if it's uh, there's a specific time. But yeah, once the Australian team was no longer um, a very strong team, uh, then certainly at that point you would have to say uh, that the West Indies were the best team. And also England was slightly weakened as well, I think, by World Series cricket. Um, uh, but by the late 70s, for sure, I don't think there was any real doubt uh, who the better team was. But I'm not sure if the where the crossover points are there exactly. you got to remember back in those days, actually, they didn't play many tests. So there were big empty spots in calendars. So it's not like today. So it is a very, very different and, and much harder way of sort of specifically looking at that. But I would have thought West Indies were well on their way before the World Series cricket fiasco, circus, whatever you want to call it, depending on your, your personal taste, I suppose. Rebel series. Neil says, it's a situation that England find themselves in with Root having resigned the captaincy partially from external pressure. Uh, yes. <laughs> 
as you've said before, the role of captain in team performance can be overstated. So do you just pick your best 11 and then make someone captain on a game-by-game or series-by-series basis? I don't think so. So the external pressure is a real thing. Uh, there is absolutely no doubt that the narrative was that Root was going to go. Whether it was the best call for English cricket or not seemed to be completely wrong. England were losing, and so Root had to lose his job, which is stupid. Uh, it's it's reductionist. They were playing teams that were better than them. Uh, of course, they lost. On top of that, there was also the situation of, at times, they were resting some of their better players because of other formats. And, and also, you know, to try and improve as a team, they rested some of their players. So... The external pressure certainly played a part in it. The, the whole um, captain by game by game, series by series, I think that if you talk to cricketers, I could be wrong on this, but I think I've mentioned this before to cricketers, it's actually quite hard. I remember when we were in Scotland, uh, Richie Barrington had to take over for a game. He had to kind of completely change how he thought about everything and how he prepared and, and all those sorts of things and how the team functioned and, you know, and also captaincy, if it is at all a real thing, should have form and dips and you'd be better at it the more you practice it and all those sorts of things. So I think in that particular case, uh, I don't think your your idea works. But with a very well-run well team, I suppose it's more possible. I'm not saying England are, I'm saying theoretically. Kennedy says, what advantage, technical or otherwise, could a bowler gain by chucking? Uh, well, you can bowl faster. Um, you can spin the ball more. I suppose those are the two most important ones, Kennedy. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. There's specific deliveries that you can bowl when you chuck that you can't bowl with a normal action regularly. You know, for instance, the deucer is probably one of the most um, obvious one. I suppose Murali's whole um, action, his particular arm maybe made it harder for him to bend and straighten it in a way that other bowlers do. But I would think if a normal bowler, I'm not doing this with my actual own broken arm, but I think if a normal bowler would do it, well, for instance, I tried to do a Murali ball to my son the other day because I thought with my bent arm it might be easier. But um, then I, I stretched my arm out and uh, stretched my elbow out. So it was I, it hurt like hell, which probably tells you that for a normal person to be able to bowl that delivery does involve a straightening of the arm. So there's two, you know, the, the Murali style off spinner, the Dusra, also, if, you, if you're a, a, a seamer in, in any T20 game and you want to bowl a cutter that spins more, um, bending your arm would help. So you bowl faster and you spin the ball more and you uh, can add extra deliveries. It's pretty handy, this uh, throwing thing. Nicholas says, of the 10 spinners Australia tried between Warren and Lyon, who do you consider to be the best, the worst, and the most harshly treated? Oh, okay. And then he goes on to ask about Horrocks being an Ashley Giles-type player. Horrocks was the most harshly treated. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I thought he, they, they said, go and learn how to bat. And he went and learned how to bat and they still dropped him. I mean, I don't, at a certain point, what more can you do? Also think that all things considered, he's probably not as good a bowler as Nathan Lyon, but I wonder how much worse a bowler than Nathan Lyon he probably is. Agar probably, I mean, I wouldn't say Agar was treated particularly bad. Obviously, Bryce McGain was treated bad in that they knew he wasn't fully fit and he wasn't confident, and they threw him in anyway. Probably cost them a, a spinner going to the Ashes. It probably cost the Australian team more than it did Bryce McGain. I don't think he was going to have a long career either way. Bo Casson, I thought they treated him poorly by throwing him into the team. I thought he clearly wasn't ready to play international cricket, and I think it affected him. I, I don't know if he's ever spoken about it publicly, um, but I don't think he was ready. He was... Uh, he was a raw left arm wrist spinner who couldn't always land the ball where he wanted to. I think playing him in a test match was, well, I think it exposed him and, and, and probably, you know, led to a lot of his other issues. Obviously, he had health issues as well. 
I think he might have even had mental health issues in the end. But yeah, so I think so I think in that particular case that there was some problems caused by that. I don't think there was any spinner that I can remember that other than Horrocks, where I thought this person has a repeatable enough action and a good enough best ball that they could play a very long career in Test cricket. Doesn't mean that Jason Crazier wasn't exceptional. Jason Crazier's best ball was obviously exceptional, uh, but his worst ball was pretty bad for a finger spinner. And, you know, everyone else was sort of not quite up to it, really. <laughs> I don't think there are that many other Australian bowlers. I'm trying to think of someone else like Xavier Doherty, Michael Beer. Michael Beer is a fantastic T20 cricketer. I think Xavier Doherty was a good T20 cricketer for a while as well, but I don't think they were ever going to be able to bowl consistently. Um, O'Keefe, I suppose, comes after the line. He's probably the one when you look at his record and you're just like, kind of consistently took wickets and can hold a bat and... Uh, what was he told? He was told he needed to grow a foot taller and get a Dusra. Uh, not ideal uh, advice, really. Ian says, Root out as captain, key in as managing director. Has this week been a positive or a negative uh, for cricket in England? Well, I mean, they have a managing director, so I suppose that's a step forward. Your second question is, you know, is Stokes as skipper a potential disaster waiting to happen? Yes, it is. That doesn't mean it will happen but it is a potential disaster waiting to happen. So I suppose in that way, Joe Root stepping down makes that more likely. And that's a huge problem for English cricket. Look, I like Rob. Um, I've talked to cricket with him. I think, I'm, I think I might've commentated with him a few times. I think he's an intelligent person. I don't think he understands what this job is. I think that's going to be a real, real test of who he is um, as a person and how he handles it. I worry about just throwing someone in into that position when they don't really know what the job is, maybe 100% yet. I would say it's probably a negative this week, um, uh, you know, all things considered. AB says, uh, I think you've discussed before that taller uh, batters are likely to have an advantage in T20 due to longer levers. Um, all other things being equal, any evidence that that's played out statistically yet in competitions like the IPL? Anecdotally, players like Venki, uh, Shivan Dubey, Andre Russell, and Tim David t uh, tend to fit that bill. Yeah, it's a really interesting question, AB. Um, no, I don't think, I mean, I don't even think we measure arm length, right? <laughs> so we're assuming that someone saw they have long arms. Um, you know, uh, refer to my video on Akshar Patel for players uh, and, and wingspans. But yeah, you can see why it would work in the same way that when when the most important thing in cricket was keeping the ball out when it was when it was running along the ground, that a short batter made more sense. You'd think in a position where you're on a flat pitch and you want someone to swing through the line, um, a taller batter with longer arms would make a lot more sense. Uh, but it is anecdotal, and it, it's like my my theory that you know the best kind of wicketkeeper is probably lower to the ground but has that ginormous wingspan. It's probably true that theory, but you know we're never going to really find that out. I wouldn't have thought. Christopher says, can you justify players striking at 100 or below for 25 or 30 balls in a 220 in the hope they can catch up? Uh, fast knock against LSG was ultimately match winning, but could have been match losing. Uh, over the long term, no. It, there are individual innings where people do that. Um, but we tend to forget all the times when they're 25 off 30 and they're dismissed. Or they're 8 off 15 and they're dismissed. That was always the big argument with Chris Gale. When he was averaging 50, I don't think it was as much of a big deal. But when he came back to earth and started averaging a more normal um, average at the end of his career, he chewed up a lot of balls. He put a lot of pressure on the other batters as well, which we know is not an issue in test cricket, but we know in one-day cricket and T20 cricket, the, the, you know, the score, score, scoring rate does affect 
um, the batters at the other end. Although I haven't done a lot of research in it, but I, I was told that by another analyst at one point, and he seemed to know his stuff. So when Faf's doing that, that particular innings that you're talking about, I thought that pitch um, was very spicy and needed probably someone who could handle pace to knock the ball around a little bit. And a moderate score was going to be okay. I think it's. I think we have to accept that there are certain times when smarter batters are going to realize that, you know, you know, let's call it Kane Williamson one on one, one on one, where they just have to knock it around a little bit and that uh, they have to give a couple of overs to the bowlers. There's a big difference between that and being consistently having slow starts uh, and doing it when the, the surface is in your favor. And I think those are the sorts of players that cause more problems, not the players who can amp up or amp down, um, uh, which I suppose Faf is one of. Um, also, if I remember in that innings, he attacked, well, to be fair, he's been attacking spinning more spin more than usual of recent times, but I wondered if he was attacking the spinners a little bit more to make up for the fact that he had such a slow start. So again, he's kind of like bringing himself back in um, into that innings in a different way than he normally would. Usually he would attack the pace bowlers, but Chimera, I think it was Chimera, wasn't it? Took a couple of quick wickets and trying to think of who else. Uh, there was a couple of other guys who, uh, who um, maybe Avish Khan, I can't even remember who, who the other seams were there. But when they took their wickets, I think he just went, this is a time to consolidate. But over the course of T20 cricket in all sorts of different wickets, then no, you would not you know, want to be in a situation like that at all. James says, how would you rate Cricket Australia's performance in attracting fans and junior players from the Asian, African, and Middle Eastern uh, migrant communities? I mean, I haven't been there in a long time. Uh, you know, I haven't lived, uh, you know, f uh, in Australia for, I don't know, 14 or 15 years. My memory was that uh, Asian uh, cricketers were kind of, junior cricketers were kept at a distance from a lot of different reasons, part of which was the culture of cr cricket clubs in Australia part of which was that most Asian families when they came to Australia was about education and they were putting that ahead of cricket, which made sense. I think there's probably been more movement towards that. What I would say is that traditionally, I think Greek, Croatian, Lebanese, Turkish kids did come across to cricket. And I don't think cricket had a plan for that, but it happened maybe automatically because of how big a role cricket played in Australian society through especially the 70s, 80s and 90s. It obviously dropped off a lot before the Big Bash, and maybe that is where the problem is. I'm pretty sure uh, most of the state boards have like diversity, um, I don't know what you call them, diversity officers who go out into new communities and try and move cricket along. I don't know if that if, if that has helped. I think it, I find it interesting that we've seen Sudanese um, kids playing Aussie rules football, and we haven't seen any first-class uh, Sudanese kids unless I'm missing someone. Uh, or African kids in general. Um, obviously, a lot of them have gone to football, Aussie rules football and soccer. And uh, obviously, the Maker family has uh, got footballers and cricketers in it. Uh, sorry, football and basketball is professional uh, right across their family. We haven't seen that in cricket. So that is interesting. The Middle Eastern one, I don't know as much about that community. I, I've studied a lot about you know the Asian community and the African community over the years i don't know as much about the middle eastern community but my my, my thinking is that a, a big part of the middle eastern community perhaps came at that time when uh cricket was not quite as important it, it, you could almost put it to the, the cable tv time right like when channel when you only had three channels to watch in the summer four five if you want to count sps everyone watched cricket and it was a very big deal rightly all the way through it was a very very big deal and i think if you you know when that has waned perhaps the 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 
the cricket has to maybe reach out to the newer communities. And, and I don't know if it has or it hasn't, but I do know uh, that they have hired some very interesting staff members to try and help them with that. Um, but maybe it won't happen overnight as well. I, I don't know. I don't know the full thing. I don't know if, you know, Aussie Rules Football, for instance, um, made a V-line for the African communities or, or what the situation there is. But uh, you would certainly think that um, they're missing out um, in the same way that, you know, they hadn't have got sort of Croatian and Serbian and Greek kids. They would have missed out on guys like, you know, Stoinis and Kadic and Stark. Like, you know, having that integration there is, I've always thought, a big advantage in Australian cricket over some of the other cricket cultures, uh, some of the other Western cricket cultures around, you know, that kind of everyone played cricket. And if that doesn't happen, then, then that's a problem for cricket, I would think, in Australia. HW341 says, assuming a computer virus destroys everything at ECB Towers and in the and in the counties and leaves you solely in charge of the structure of first-class cricket, list A, yeah, got it. <laughs> what would you put in place for an English, Britain, domestic cricket? Well, I mean, if you're doing it from scratch, I suppose what you would have is you would have a major league, minor league type situation. So let's say you'd have... 12 counties um, spread out, you know, right across the UK, but then you'd have another 24 teams uh, in minor league. Everyone would be paid as a professional. You would have regular games overseas in places that you could afford to have them. You would probably split up the three different formats and have them at different times of the year. This is obviously if you're trying to make the uh, best as you say, maximize international success. You could also have a promotion and relegation um, thing as well, you know, follow the real English thing and just say, okay, we've got 32 professional counties, 36 professional counties, how many, how, however many you want, and you're going to get promoted and relegated and, and, uh, and all those sorts of things. So there's that model or there's the American model. Uh, you would control the pitches. You would take the control of the pitches away from the counties directly. So you could have six spinning pitches and four seaming pitches and three bouncing pitches and five, you know, flat pitches, whatever they may be. As best you can do that in English conditions. So I suppose those are the sorts of very basic things that you would be looking at doing. And you probably play all three of the formats in different windows. Um, I think every cricketer would prefer that. You know, you play the list day at the, at, at the start of the summer. If you're still worried about T20 getting in, you know, more fans and everything else, you play the 100 or the Blast, whatever it may be, in that middle section, and you play first class kind of on either end of, of that, uh, the extremes of that. But once you've sorted out the pitches, that should help a lot more to begin with. But I suppose that's the basic plan I would come up with. Um, I'd have to think about it a lot more. There's a, I've got a million ideas of what you would do if you, if you were to completely change a first class setup. But I think that's the very basic setup that you'd be looking at doing. Richard says, what would you be looking for in a player who started in T20 to suggest they might be good test players like Warner compared to those who didn't quite make it like Butler? Okay, Richard, this is really interesting. I don't know if you know this, but uh, Warner, was if his 11th first-class game was a test match, but in his 10 first-class games, I think he scored 300s. I think he scored two for New South Wales and one for Australia A, or it might have been a couple for Australia A. I can't remember the full details of that. I think one was double hundred as well with, with Aaron Finch. He wasn't picked because he was a T20 player. He was picked because he was already making red ball runs in a different way, obviously, uh, you know, kind of like T Keith Stackpole plus. That's probably no one's going to get that reference, but a very aggressive opening batter. But he was making red ball runs as well and obviously made a lot of red ball runs in, in club cricket and I think in second 11 cricket, although I'd have to go back and have a look at that. But that was my memory. It's just the New South Wales were very strong and it was a hard team to get into at that time. And I think people were a little bit worried he was 
too reckless for Red Bull cricket as well. Butler did not have that record. Butler really struggled in first-class cricket for Somerset on what was a great batting pitch in his era. Never really showed uh, the ability to make hundreds in Red Bull cricket consistently, which has stayed with him, to be fair, even in test cricket. He's a better player now than he was when he started out with Somerset. If you're asking me what I'm looking for, I can't find a single five to ten year test batter who didn't have a decent first class record. And and by decent, I mean Marcus Drascothic on up and, and, and Michael Vaughan on up. Or didn't have a period like Marcus Drasovic or Michael Vaughan, who hadn't made a lot of first class hundreds, who suddenly makes first class hundreds. The idea I can't think of any T Turney or one day players who've successfully done that. I think we've seen it maybe in bowlers more occasionally, but I can't really think about that many. I mean, I've asked around, if, you know, if anyone if wants to send any to me, but generally when you have a look, they had, they've already made first class hundreds and they were good first class players. Um, or they were just really young and hadn't played much first class cricket, which is, which is very fair as well. But you don't really see, you don't really see players like Aaron Finch make it. Um, Aaron Finch struggled in, in, uh, well, first-class cricket in Australia. Um, I can't remember how he went when he went, played for Surrey um, or Yorkshire, but I don't remember him burning the house down or anything, and then struggled when he played for Australia. That's fairly consistent, I think. Sandeep says, should Coley and Rohit be automatic choices in the Indian T20 team for the World Cup, considering that they are nowhere near the top six Indian batters in the OPL? I, I mean, that's one season. I, I wouldn't be looking at one season's form for that, Sandeep. Um I don't, I've never really thought that they both should be in the team because they both kind of do the same thing anyway. Um, so that would be my bigger point. But I would never take, I would never pick a World Cup team based on one season's IPL or any franchise tournament. Um, I'd certainly look at a lot more than that. Um, uh, that's not to say that they should still be in the team, but I'd have to go back and run the numbers. Uh, but I don't necessarily, I mean, KRL should be opening ahead of both of them to begin with. And then you've got, I'd probably open with Proof for sure. Um, but there's many other options uh, for, for India available to them. Obviously, you know, if Rohit's captain, then he's probably going to get a gig. So, you know, there's that. Uh, but I wouldn't have thought that they were locks based on the way that they've, they've been playing. I've kind of tuned out on Mumbai, to be honest. Um, but I have seen more of Bangalore. I suppose he made a golden duck the other day, didn't he, Vera? So we can't hold that one against him. But, um, I mean, his batting just does not look to be at the level that it used to be. Johnny says, who would have been your five wizard cricketers of the English summer? I mean, to be honest, I, I've watched so much cricket, Johnny, thinking back to what who played good in England um, enough to win that award. It kind of almost never, it would never stick in my head. It's just not the way I look at it. I mean, well done to Wisden for managing to keep this going in an era where the English summer doesn't really mean as much as it used to and still get a lot of press and, and you know, helps them sell the book and, People should buy cricket books, so I'm not going to have a go at that. But realistically, it's not something that I massively think about or care about um, all that much. In fact, I know I've looked it up, um, and I still can't remember half the players that were in that. The Dunne van Neerkirk, I think she was in it. Um, can't even remember who the county player was this year, so I can't help you there, Johnny. Sorry about that. All right, let's go to the room and see what we've got. Atish, you there? Hi, can you hear me? I can. What's your question, mate? What we're currently seeing in India, politically in the country, is that Muslims are socially and, like, they're segregated socially and economically. 
from most parts of India, correct? So in a situation like this, do cricket does because cricket is the biggest team in India. How much of a responsibility do they have of addressing these issues? Because, and this is, I think, very important. Sorry, how much responsibility does who have in addressing those issues? By they, I mean uh, cricketers. Um, because cricket is huge in India, right? Mm-hmm. So just as front of opposition to the government, uh, which is doing this. And the reason I'm uh, especially stress- stressing on cricketers is because last year, India saw massive farmer protests, right? And mm-hmm. then a lot of Indian cricketers had cleared out after Rihanna had criticized the entire thing that the government is doing with the farm bills that, that was subject to the protest. A lot of Indian cricketers are traded out saying that it's an internal matter and there's an international conspiracy and like everyone should just shut up. So <laughs> they cannot then take the cover of cricket being separate from politics because clearly they have interfered before. So how much responsibility do you think they have? But when you say responsibility, resp- so what should they be speaking up about specifically? They should be saying that the government shouldn't be marginalizing the Muslim community. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah. You're assuming that they believe that, though, rather than thinking that the government should be marginalizing the Muslim community, right? You're assuming that they're thinking that. It's very possible they think the opposite of that. It's very opposite they think that the Muslim community should be marginalized, right? In my experience, cricketers are not particularly progressive on social topics. Some are, and and wonderful uh, people that they are. I think cricket change rooms tend to be incredibly um, conservative places. And the cricketers I know are generally quite conservative. Um, I'm right across the spectrum. Uh, you know, almost every every country that I've ever talked to. There aren't many Mark Butchers out there on Twitter, you know, uh, fighting for the progressive causes of former cricketers, are there, that I've missed? Do you know what I mean? So that's, that would be my first thing. You're assuming they're going to be on that side. They might be on the other side. Second one is, I think everyone should use their voice, right? But I would never say you have to use your voice. Everyone has their own reasons for doing things and their own reasons for not doing things. And there's a lot of noise, especially on social media, uh, a lot of people posturing to look like the right person and all these sorts of different things. Um, and there's a lot of bad stuff as well, um, uh, you know, real bad stuff uh, out there on social media. If if they have a strong opinion on that, I would say that they should feel free to do it. But Gautam Gambier's strong opinion on it probably isn't going to be what you want is my guess. Uh, Suresh Rainer's strong position on it is probably not going to be what you want. I think if if all the players started talking up, you get a lot of players who would side with the government, if we're being honest. Now, maybe the one player who stands up against the government is great. We love those sorts of people. And, you know, uh, Colin Kaepernick and um, uh, what's his name? Faisa uh, Lalisa, the um, uh, the runner. Um, you know, it, you know, there's some brilliant pe- uh, athletes who stood up against social injustice, inequality, you know, tyrants, all sorts of things throughout the history of sport. And they do go on to be legends. There's a lot that do it and end up unemployed. I recently interviewed Craig Hodges, who was the uh, Michael Jordan's teammate, the Chicago Bulls, probably one of the best three-point shooters I ever saw in the early part of the NBA. And he went from, I'm pretty sure he went from winning a championship to being unemployed. And I don't mean went from winning a championship to like, riding the bench for a bad team. I mean, he won a championship and then couldn't find a team after that. And that was uh, after he stood up um, against uh, injustices that he saw in in American society. You're talking about people who have a 12 to 15 year career, hopefully at maximum. Uh, I can understand why professional athletes don't stand up. Uh, Colin Kaepernick probably, I suppose in his case, he kneeled, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, he probably did himself out of what three or four years of 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 his career earnings 
what's the average lifespan of a quarterback in the in the NFL? I wouldn't have thought it was very long. Uh, you know, Muhammad Ali fighting against, um, uh, you know, being drafted uh, in Vietnam probably cost himself a couple of years of his career as well. Uh, and that's maximum earning years for some of these uh, athletes. Now, the Indian cricketers may not get that. They may get the opposite. Uh, they're also entering, I think, I think a lot of people think that, I mean, you, you described the situation really well. You're assuming that the cricketers know that that's the situation. There's a really, really good book called The Unforgiven on the West Indian rebels who went to South Africa. Some of them didn't even know what apartheid was when they went to South Africa. They didn't really understand what was happening in South Africa at that time. Not everyone is politically conscious and not everyone thinks about these things. Uh, and, you know, uh, it, it, of recent times, you've got a lot of progressive people in the NBA saying a lot of good things. And you've got Enos Cantor becoming a right-wing culture um, shock job. Right. So <laughs> it goes both ways. So, yeah, I suppose everyone should. I would love it if everyone used their voice. But I think when everyone uses their voice, you won't get the answers or the comments that you're looking for. Right. Uh, but Srindit, if it's about cricket, then what? Because last year also something else happened, which is Wasim Jaffer being uh, ostracized mm. and uh, being accused of communalism. Uh, by the there, was, there, was two, wasn't there? there was two in Indian cricket last year. It was Wasim Jaffer. And Muhammad Shami on Instagram, I think it was. Yeah. They stood up for Muhammad Shami. They didn't stand up for Wasim Jaffar. Yeah, I thought that probably showed you perhaps where some of the thinking is, that some of those people didn't do it. I think they stood up for their teammate, but they didn't stand up for a former player they maybe didn't know as well, which maybe tells you where they are politically. They'll back their friends, but maybe the issues, uh, I wouldn't say confuse them, although it would confuse some of them because they're not all going to be experts in politics and and Indian uh, uh, race relations, right, or, or ethnic relations and religious relations right across the country. But yeah, so uh, I think that probably tells you more about the, the culture of, of, of that team. They stood up for their friend, but they didn't stand up for the other guy. Um, but you're right. I think a lot of people didn't uh, stand up for, for Wasim Jaffer in that particular case. So is that a potential, I don't know, is that a canary in the coal mine? Or is it just they didn't want to get involved in what was a bit of a dicky scandal wasn't it I, I, is that the right word it, do you know what i mean it was a bit of a shitty nonsense thing to get involved in at a certain point but yeah look i know a lot of people who are much more famous than me and they feel very passionate about things but i also think that they also sometimes think that they maybe they don't know if they're adding to the problem or, or helping the solution sometimes when they say things and i think that that is it's awkward. I mean, using your political voice if you're someone who's got 120 Twitter followers is a confusing thing. Try doing it when you have 100 million, right? Uh, you know, or you massively, it, it really does. I, you know, I, go, I remember the LeBron James thing uh, with Daryl Morey where, you know, he was asked about Daryl Morey and he basically told Daryl Morey to, you know, he, he wasn't very educated on this issue and he should, you know, stick to being a general manager. When, Dar when LeBron James had been so upset when someone had said a similar thing about him. It's, it, there's a bunch of different minefields that I think the very famous people trip on a lot. And, you know, you say something and then you have Piers Morgan, you know, quoting um, something back at you straight away. And I think it makes a lot of them feel uncomfortable. And they're not experts in this. That is an important thing to know, I think. Yeah, that's right. I, I guess I was just thinking about Virat Kohli and Amazoni when I said this because they don't face any of these risks, most of these risks, mm -hmm. uh, because they are like Amazoni and Virat Kohli. I mean, you're right. What you really need is more privileged people understanding the problems and talking about it. But 
when they tweet it, they're then just going to get a million replies back telling them they don't know what they're talking about. And if they don't know what they're talking about, that's going to make them feel uncomfortable. And you're also assuming that they are on the right side of this. I'm not saying they're not. I have no idea where they come down on this. But it was quite clear there was a lot of pressure put on them, obviously, with their um, planned statements when it came to the farmers. Um, you know, I mean, that was nonsensical. That made them all look like idiots, didn't it? Realistically, it made them look like weak-willed uh, people who were all towing a company line, and it was a nonsensical thing to say. Like, you know, there are Indian, there are Indian TV hosts who talk about things that happen in America and Sri Lanka and Pakistan and every other country all the time, right? Where, where are they being told to stay out of other, you know, it's exactly the same thing. Everyone talks about all countries now. We're in a global society. So it didn't even make any sense. But I do think, I think that was probably an external pressure put on them. And I think may, perhaps without that external pressure, you, you see players less, less likely to talk. It, look, I promise you, I've had conversations about this with players before. And there's so many different reasons that so many of them don't do it. They just, you know, from everything from it doesn't help my brand all the way through to I wouldn't know what to say, right? I, I very, very normal things um, that these players would say to me. Thanks for your question, mate. Thanks. Keshuv, you there? Yeah, so it's regarding the recently concluded South Africa-Bangladesh test series. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was so bizarre to see almost... A repeat telepaths of what happened in the first test, second innings, happening in second test, second innings as well. Just the two spinners bowling alone and, you know, getting all the 10 wickets twice. So, what was your reaction to that, your thoughts? Because it's not like South Africa getting bundled out against pairs in Bangladesh. It was Bangladesh and South Africa. So, were Maharaj and Hamar that good or uh, Bangladesh just did stupid things? I saw the first match. I didn't, I didn't see the end of the second match. Simon Harmer is a magnificent bowler. And I think because we haven't seen him as much at international level, we don't, you know, uh, you can't take the amount of wickets he took in county cricket with not being, without being an exceptional bowler, being that the conditions are not really in your favour um, that often. So if you're a spinner and you're taking that many wickets, and we've seen, you know, some really good Indian spinners come over um, at times and do similar things Um in county cricket. So we 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 have a baseline there. Mushtaq Ahmed's a, another very good example of that. So I think we knew how good a bowler he was. Uh, Keshev Maharaj, I think, uh, you know, in tandem with him forms a very good partnership. I think he's a very good fourth innings, third innings, fourth innings bowler as well. Uh, I think Bangladesh probably will look back and go, we went all the way to South Africa and got beaten by spinners. There's probably some big questions to be made there. I wrote a piece in, must have been before COVID. When was COVID? So 2019. And it was all about the life of being a spinner in South Africa. And I talked to Maharaj, uh, I talked to Shamsi, Robin Peterson, uh, Paul Adams, perhaps, maybe Paul Harris, I can't remember. I talked to a bunch of them about what it was like and how they were treated. They were all, all the modern guys were saying, it's changing so much. And one of the things they said was, and I, this is, this is one of the things I'm just putting out there because they have said it. I have no idea if there's a way we can check it, let alone if it's true or not. But they said that as the world has got hotter and global warming has affected South Africa, um, that they think the pitches have changed over there. And they've gone away from seam-only pitches to spin-friendly pitches in a lot of situations, especially towards the back end of games. So with that in mind, and you then put a decent spinner in Maharaja's case, and uh, I would say an above average um, spin quality 
uh, talent in Simon Harmer there against, you know, a, a, a fragile Bangladesh batting lineup. I, I think they've done well over the last couple of years at times, but I wouldn't say they're a consistent batting lineup. I think you could see why that would happen. I don't think Bangladesh is sitting there going, this is a normal thing for us to have happen. But I do wonder if, you know, the combination of a few different things, a couple of mature spinners maybe at the top of their craft, surfaces in South Africa slightly changing, you know, played a role in, in that more, more, more so than before. And so spinners also in South Africa were never used as attacking options and harm has been used as attacking option for a long time. And Maharaj is, is certainly very well trusted. Um, I mean, they've got three of the more interesting spinners in the world. If, if you throw in to Ray Shamsi as well, who I think has a better first class record than Simon Harmer. They really do have an interesting three spinner lineup, um, which is kind of come from nowhere you know the last time they had sort of multiple spin options that were interesting was that brief moment when Roloff, Vandermover and Johan Bota um, took some wickets together we've seen them have a couple of other spinners at times but maybe not be quite as dominant as they as they are now something is clearly changing in South African cricket and I don't think we can just write this off as you know Bangladesh had a shocker although it's fair to say that Bangladesh had two shockers what surprised you more? Uh, was it the success of South African spinners doing these kind of things twice in a series or Bangladesh just bundling up? Because it's the same team which did well in New Zealand, drawn the series one all, and then to be bundled out against spinners and within 20 overs. I don't think either of it surprised me because Bangladesh is not a great consistent batting lineup. You're pointing out one series, you know, consistently, I don't think anyone is banking on the Bangladeshi batting lineup to be good game after game after game at the moment. So them being bundled out didn't surprise me. Them being bundled out against spin, I suppose more so, but facing spin in South Africa is not like facing spin in Bangladesh, right? They're completely different kinds of uh, uh, spin conditions and what you have to do. Uh, even even someone like Maharaj is probably a very different kind of left-arm finger spinner than what you see in Bangladesh. And I wasn't surprised that the South African spinners did well because... I know that they're both very good quality bowlers. And I also knew that conditions were changing in South Africa and things have changed. And the mindset about spinners has, has slowly started to change. It's why I wrote my piece, because I thought at that time, that might be the last time I got a chance to write that piece. And it was important to note that before then, you know, it had been over 100 years since South Africa, you really had quality spin that they'd relied on consistently, other than one or two, you know, one-off bowlers. And so suddenly to have three top spinners coming through at that time, I thought it was quite interesting. Just the last follow-up, does it have anything to do with the fact that these tests were happening in mid-April or uh, early April? Because that's never happened before in a long time. I wouldn't have thought so, because that, you would have thought that would have been a more moist time of the year, not a drier time of the year in South Africa. I can't even remember where the tests were played now. So I'd have to go back and have a look. But you would have thought that was, you know, it, it was well, it was, it was no longer in their summer, right? So, well, I suppose you know, well out of their summer by that point. So you would actually think that that would help seamers more than spinners. Thanks for your question, mate. Arnav. Well, can you hear me? Yeah, how are you doing? I'm fine, uh, thank you. My, I had to ask you a question. First question is like in the space being uh, playing pandemic, as you have said, mm -hmm. you had bowlers like Ishan Sharma and Saudi who became sort of over average bowlers and who became great bowlers in this period. Which bowlers do you think who sort of played most of their career in this uh, four or five year period who would have struggled in that earlier phase or who wouldn't be the best bowlers that we see? Like, do you think like an Afridi or Holder for me, like, or Gabriel? All of them. Or, 
make a make a start lead. They all struggled in that previous period. So anyone from this period would have struggled more in that previous period. And do you think like someone like uh, bowlers like uh, Hogard, Zahir Khan, Hamerson, who had that average between 28 and 32, which is not a great uh, bowling average, would have done better in this period or like we don't sort of treat them quite well. Like Hogard, I believe, is quite underrated as an Indian bowler. So Hogard, there's no bowlers left like Hogard. So he would have had to change how he bowled. Harmison would have been absolutely fine. Who was the the other one that you mentioned? Sorry, Zahid Khan. Zahid Khan would have been absolutely fine. I mean, Zahid Khan. I always thought Zahid Khan's best skill was flat pitches. I thought he was a fantastic flat pitch bowler. So if if you're a good flat pitch bowler and uh, the ball starts to nibble around a bit, you know your numbers are going to come in vastly. You know he's never now sadly because there's been so many better uh, you know so many bowls with better figures since he came along he's never going to get the credit that he deserves but he was an absolutely fantastic bowler so yeah so anyone of that era i mean i, I think i've r- written about or maybe done a video about what would dale stain have done peak dale stain dale stain in one of the toughest eras ever for fast bowlers absolutely dominated batters what on earth would he have done in this era with a wobble ball um i don't even know how you play dale stain at you know, 88 to 92 miles an hour, skidding, hitting the stumps more than other bowlers, uh, angling in because he would have bowled from wider on the crease with that wobble ball. I don't even, he would have been like Kemar Roach, but 10 miles an hour quicker, right? Like, I don't know how you face that um, under under the way that cricket is currently played. So yeah, every every bowler, there's probably, I can't think of a single bowler who wouldn't have, have done better under the new um, situation than the one from before. So whether that is a combination of the wobble ball, analytics, coaching, uh, 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 pitches, whatever that may be, it is ab- absolutely clear that uh, it is much easier for fast bowlers in this last five years now, probably, or four, four and a half years, uh, than it was beforehand. So Hogard would have only been interesting because he was such an old-fashioned bowler, even for his era, um, how that would have translated but, but he probably would have changed what he would have done as well. He probably would have come wider on the wicket as well. So uh, he would have been slightly different. But, but yeah, uh, you know, there's in the same way, there's a lot of guys right now who, who have come into Test cricket in the last five years who will end up with much lower averages than guys who played between 2000 and 2017. Um, the opposite is true for the bowlers. And then last question, as you like always said about Shane one that you know, he had that bouncer sort of body and like a very physical sort of body so like you know that sort of differentiated him from other sort of like leg spinners but what is the secret with Megra? because Megra was sort of credited with this uh bringing this new medium sort of fast bowler probe like which uh stuart Lard, Mohammed Asif, but uh, like right now like, uh, like hazelwood is also of that breed but no one kind of is was is that successful as Megra. Like, I saw some article where they sort of said that even though Magra's speed was quite, like, it was in that 130 zone, but but when he released the ball, it was actually a bit quicker than the speed gun reported. Like, what do you think is that magic? Because he bowled on those Australian wickets with Kokobora balls, which now, like, which we consider a great bowling era, but would struggle. Like, what was, do you think, that extra sort of thing that separated Magra from others? So McGrath was a combination of about three special things, I suppose. 
he wasn't that slow. I, th- I think we we talk about his his pace. He he bowled mid. He bowled around the same pace Carl Jameson did. All right, Carl Jameson's not particularly easy to play. No, but what I'm saying is he bowled he bowls at a similar pace to Carl Jameson. If you are six foot six and you bowl at that pace, there aren't that many guys who are six foot six who could do that with the skills he had. So his skills were, I think, he had an exceptional wrist. Uh, not ju- not in a swing bowling way, but in a seam bowling way. The way he snapped down his wrist, I thought, was incredible. He had the ability to move the ball basically both ways, but he could move the ball on flat pitches in a way that most bowlers couldn't. So the problem with with, with tall bowlers tends to be that they be a, they're a little bit floaty when they pitch the ball up. He had the ability to uh, pitch the ball up maybe a little bit more than most tall bowlers because of the snap of the wrist. I suppose Kirtley Ambrose is a very similar. I just probably and they, they were both very successful at a, at a very similar time. But the most important thing is that before McGrath, there really weren't that many very tall bowlers who were accurate and fast. Him and Kirtley Ambrose, and I suppose you could put Courtney Walsh in in, in that um, as well, were were different to other bowlers. They were completely different. And if you look at the generation before them. The West Indians did a similar thing with a bunch of, you know, taller, faster bowlers. You know, if you if you can combine height and pace with accuracy or skill, then you're you're going to be very hard to play. And in, in McGrath's case, pace was probably the thing he had the least of, but he wasn't slow, but he had accuracy and skill and height, and you couldn't really there was no there's no way with him or or Ambrose specifically, there's no real way to score off them. Right, so they kept you in place for as long as possible, and when you're, you're going up against bowlers like that, if you can't get away from them, they will eventually work out how to dismiss you. They will move you into a position that they want to move you into, and then dismiss you with that. And, and I think that that's essentially what it was. I mean, you know, McGrath's I, McGrath is way more accurate than Kyle Jameson. He's obviously you know a few inches shorter, but way more accurate than Kyle Jameson, and. I can't think. I Kirtley and McGrath are probably the only two bowlers who sort of combine the, those three skills of height, decent speed, and uh, you know the ability to move the ball laterally with with deadly accuracy. I think McGrath would be good in any era because of that. Even if he was a little bit slower um, uh, than some of the others, uh, the, the height. The height does help you. you. You probably don't want to be. You probably won't get this reference, but there's a, a guy called uh, Steve McGoffin who played for Western Australia um, and played for uh, I think Sussex for a long time as well in, in county cricket and took a lot of first class wickets. But it was probably just a little bit too slow to go to that next level. McGrath still had that. He could hit you with a bouncer. He got a lot of wickets with the short balls, which is kind of as fast as you need to be if you have all of his other skills. Like you said, like you guys say about Pat Cummins, like he's that accurate, like for a 90 mile power yeah. Like I'm just, just comparing with that, like, you know, like Cummins has that extra pace with that accuracy, maybe not that accuracy of McGrath, but he has that accuracy. So, like, that might, you know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Cummins is a perfect example. We don't have bowlers of Cummins' pace being that accurate. And then he also has the ability to get subtle movement you know sideways he you know he used to be a swing bowler Cummins and he became a seam bowler which tells you that he's thinking about his game quite a bit and again it's it's the combinations of two and three things right that generally makes you if you're just quick people can probably face you if you're just skillful people can probably work their way around you right if you're just tall people can work out um, how to do it but when you start to combine one two three four different things together 
that's when Ebola goes to another level. You know, Wazimakram, for instance, is a really good example of this. He's a left armer when there weren't really any left armers around. He was skillful. Most left arm bowlers before him, uh, you know, really hadn't been that skillful. Um, he was fast and he was accurate. He wasn't accurate like Clem McGrath, but he was certainly a fairly accurate bowler for someone who bowled at his pace. And so suddenly you put all those different things together and it's like, well, that's a combination of different skills. Whereas if you go back to your Shane Warne point from before, if you look at the difference between Shane Warne and Anil Kumble, right? Anil Kumble had a lot of skills that Shane Warne had, but he didn't have all the skills that Shane Warne had. He was still a fantastic bowler though. And, and that's probably the difference. And I think you can see that a lot with really, you know, the difference between a great for their country and an all-time absolute great player is usually it's a combination of like, you know, four or five main skill sets. One of the other things with, with Glenn McGrath, before we go, which I don't think Curtly Ambrose had, and it's very rare in bowlers, but you do get it occasionally, is he had an incredible memory. So before analytics and video replays were there, he could remember how he had dismissed every single batter he'd ever dismissed and how he'd bowled to them. That's a superpower, right? Because then you know... You, he doesn't have to work it out when he's bowling to them again. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's basically he's, he's the, the, the fast bowler and the analyst in, in one position. And that kind of memory and that kind of brain um, is the sort of thing that makes, you know, uh, that, that again, take, you know, um, takes you to that upper level um, of, of being a, a great, great rather than just a, a great or a, or, a, or a national great or anything like that. Thanks for your question. That was great. Uh, it's just a couple of people in the chat. Let's see. Uh, Sid has asked, asked if I ever wrote a piece about Ian Chappell. He's been forgotten as a top-class player and also a major figure during professional cricket. I've never done anything about Chappelle. He's got such a weird career because when you look at his test average, you go, it's not that great. But when you know what he did in World Series cricket and the fact that he probably didn't get the most out of himself, I think also he was a player that probably would have thrived in the professional era, which is why he was pushing towards it, which is the second part of your question about, you know, the ages. I kind of feel, though, that he has been covered a fair bit. But if I have an angle on Ian Chappell, then, you know, I'll, I'll certainly uh, I'll certainly do it. But at the moment, I don't think I have uh, a particular an angle that, you know, or, or something that interests me. But he's, I, look, he's a fantastically interesting person. He can be so abrupt when you meet him personally. I remember when I was at Crick Info, uh, like qu quite often I'd have to tell him that he had to go and do a video somewhere. And he'd always be so put out by, what? Wait, I have to do what? And he never remembered my name. And then one day I wrote something that he really liked and I walked into a pub and he happened to be there. Hey, oh, Jared. And then since then, he's never talked to me again. I find him a fascinating character. I really do. Like as a person, as much as a cricketer, I think as a commentator, I think he got stuck in about three or four ideas. And I think he's probably smarter than that. But in the days before Twitter, he could kind of get away with it. And then, you know, by the time I had a blog and everything, you know, we were playing Channel 9 Bingo on my blog. You know, when's he going to mention the Les Favel story? When's he going to mention one of the many Leses that he quite often mentions? You know, and he had the same kind of stories. I don't think he grew with the game as much as someone as smart as him should have. And you could say the same about someone like Sonal Gavaska, where you just like, they're incredible cricket brains. And occasionally they'll say something that will just stop me in my tracks uh, that I've never heard anyone say before. And it's so wise. But then you just hear the, you know, the same stories that they've told over and over again. But you're right. I mean, he's a fantastic player, um, had a fantastic career, and is a big part in why Australian cricket went professional and why we have a players union that covers, I don't know, was it about 60% of the test playing nations or, or something along that line? 
So yeah, it's something that I've thought about, but I've never, I've never really gotten around to. Joseph Matthew says the Zimbabwean cricketers. Not sure if that was uh, in the political um, thing. Yeah, I mean, those were players who saw something very wrong in their country and spoke up about it. Uh, I think there were three players on that team willing to do it. You know, we've seen, we've certainly seen that. I think Stuart McGill refused to go to Zimbabwe because of Robert Mugabe. We've certainly seen players take political stands on both sides. Uh, you know, there's certainly some uh, conservative uh, cricketers out there. Not everyone's progressive. In fact, in cricket, almost the opposite when it comes to the players at a certain time. So, yeah, you know, but it's tough and it's weird. And it did affect uh, the Zimbabwean cricketers' uh, lives. Henry Alonga basically had to give up being a professional cricketer at that point. Uh, Andy Flower, I think, never went back to Zimbabwe for about 18 years, if I remember correctly. I think that's right. I think the number's right. It's 18 years. He went back recently. I, I, we had him on our on, on my my non-crickets radio show, weirdly enough, talking to Neil Manthorpe about that. So, yeah, so there's absolutely no doubt that it has affected, uh, it did affect their lives. You know, there are many political stands that, that you could take throughout the cricket world. There are still cricket nations that I think have uh, homophobic laws, for instance. There's obviously treatment of women. Like, you could go down, but cricketers aren't generally that political and are protecting, as I said before, that very short career. It's up to you, me. Everyone has our individual uh, points on, uh, you know, point of view on that. But I'm not expecting a, a mass amount of cricketers to suddenly come out as uh, political experts at the moment. But, you know, occasionally they will pick and choose their battles or just send off a drunken tweet, I suppose, like the rest of us. But thanks so much for listening to another uh, episode of Wagon Wheel. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel. And if you have listened this long, you probably like what we do. And that is great. So please rush over and support us on Patreon, which has many extra advantages the podcast doesn't have, like asking earlier questions. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you, because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is our sound maestro. Bakundra Bandredi presses record on the videos and then falls asleep. Orijasi Sempati makes the podcast into video gold. And Shubanka Bhattacharya makes pretty, pretty graphics. Thank you.